The Fantasy Animation Podcast takes its listeners on a journey through the colliding and sometimes competing worlds of fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. Each episode, we select an example of fantasy animation and consider the ways in which it functions to inspire and use our imaginations within the sphere of all things that are sculpted, composed, crafted and drawn. To help support the show, please subscribe via your podcast feed and give us a like and a quick review. It takes no more than a minute, but it really helps us to grow our audience. You can also find our archive of podcasts and our weekly blog at fantasy-animation.org. You'll find the latest reviews there, features, editorials, all written by academics, writers, historians and professional animators working within these overlapping media, mediums and genres. Failing all that, tell your friends, tell a friend about the show and the good work we do here. There's no substitution for good old-fashioned word of mouth, so thanks for downloading and I really hope you enjoy the show. Hi listeners and welcome to the latest festive episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me, Chris. We're actually recording this in December holiday. And uh, Alex, uh, yeah, pretty astounded by that, Sergeant. <laughs> well, this is not the norm for our Christmas specials. I feel like we, we normally sort of, this is very much a summer job. Yeah, normally it's too uh, hot, isn't it? It's very hot yeah. when we're recording uh, Christmas sure. specials. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, in the words of in the words of Noddy Holder, it's Christmas. It's Christmas, or at least it is for us, as we take a look at the 1983 short Mickey's Christmas Carol, Disney's animated retelling of the Charles Dickens masterpiece, directed and produced by longtime Disney storyboarder Bernie Mattinson. Uh, I think he's actually the longest-serving employee of the Disney company, which perhaps gives listeners an idea of the pedigree of today's choice. So for me, I've got a few notes, of course, on anthropomorphism, because don't I always, uh, but also Disney's broad a connection to festive specials and perhaps their history of Christmas themed productions that use their most beloved characters um, uh, as well as bits on Disney and technology in the 80s animated stardom uh, archival and authentic voices I'm sort of interested in in the or the archived and the authentic voice um, particularly with animation uh, and then the framing of, of Disney and Dickens as master storytellers Alex does this tale of Ebenezer Scrooge, played so wonderfully by Scrooge McDuck, and we'll talk about that, uh, in an animated version of 19th century London, veer at all into fantasy? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I feel like every year I have to talk about Dickens and A Christmas Carol on this podcast. We've done it last year with uh, Malcolm Cook when we did animated Christmas adverts. Yep. We've done the Muppet Christmas yep. Carol. We're now doing Mickey's Christmas Carol. I'd like this to be a seasonal thing. Let's get through them all over the next few years, and then I'll have nothing left to say about Dickens. I'll squeeze out what I've got left, but of course, Christmas is a time for imagining... Christmas is a time for fantasy, for stories, for fairy tales, and indeed for Disney. So I've got lots to say this week. Yeah, well, and Christmas is also a time for receiving gifts. And what a gift in the form of our special guest for this episode. Um, so, yes, our, our special guest for this seasonal seasonal instalment is Dr. Amy M. Davis, lecturer in film studies at the University of Hull, who is also author of numerous books and uh, conference papers. On I've seen, I think we both, Alex, have seen her speak many times on Disney and animation. Uh, her books include uh, Good Girls and Wicked Witches and Handsome Heroes and Vile Villains, as well as the editor of the book Discussing Disney from a couple of years ago, which was which was based on a conference that, weirdly enough, was the conference that inspired the fantasy animation journey. So there's a nice little nice little uh, loop going on there. Uh, she's also Amy's also part of the fantasy animation team. First coming on board as our film and TV editor, and then soon to be moving into another exciting role that we're keeping under our Santa hats for the time being. So Amy, thank you for coming on this Christmas special episode of the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, well, we've wanted you on for a while and sort of trying to find the right opportunity, really. And to kick things off, I, I wanted to ask you something that I heard actually only a couple of weeks ago at an event on Shrek, where you gave a brief glimpse into what got you started on all things Disney. And if I remember rightly, you mentioned that it was the theme parks and the shorts that got you into Disney rather than the features. Um, so just before we get to, to grips with Mickey's Christmas Carol, could you perhaps give yeah give listeners a bit more of this kind of backstory in terms of your personal and professional relationship to the mouse house 
yeah. <laughs> so, well, it's, I mean, it's always been there. Disney has always been there for me. And one of my earliest memories, uh, which, you know, is a TV memory, I'm not ashamed to say, um, was watching the 1950s Mickey Mouse Club on reruns on um, afternoon television. I would have been about two and a half, three years old. Um, the shorts were playing on TV from time to time. There were, of course, you know, Halloween specials, Christmas specials, things like that. And then in uh, when I was five, going to Disney World for the first time. And just it was just amazing and mind blowing. And it was the perfect way to go because my parents and my little brother were actually several states away. And I was with my grandmother who, you know, treated me like a queen my entire life. <laughs> and so, you know, it was it was the best day ever. And plus, I was sort of bowled <laughs> over by the fact, which I realized on that day, that she and Mickey Mouse were both born in 1928. So it was just like, you know, it all came together. And, you know, <laughs> my parents were, were married um, less than an hour away from Disney World the month that it opened, you know. And, and it's just there were all these sort of ties that came together. And it was just like, this is the most wonderful place in the world. And I've been back many, many times. I literally have no idea how many times I've been to Disney World because we used to live for a time when I was a kid. We lived in Florida. So on a Saturday, you want to go to Disney World, get in the car, drive about an hour, and we were there. So, oh. you know, with a discount, Florida resident. <laughs> <laughs> so so how, how does one turn that sort of, uh, I mean, it's a thing we probably all struggle with when we talk about mm -hmm. Disney, but how does one turn that childish sense of kind of joy and, and nostalgia mm -hmm. and, and all the things that we associate with, with and people will have many mm -hmm. similar memories into a kind of academic engagement? Talk us through how we sort of that journey um, um, came about. Well, I mean, for me personally, I started because I found out I could. <laughs> um, it was when I was doing my master's, which was in modern history at UCL, and I was sort of batting around different ideas for a topic for my thesis. And I rather flippantly, after a conversation the night before with my brother, um, rather flippantly said to my supervisor, why don't I just do it on Disney? And his response was, well, why not? And it was, oh, I can do that? Cool. <laughs> you know, and I, I didn't look back. Um, but it, as far as sort of taking that step back, and, you know, going from being the fan, you know, the, the, you know, in this true sense of the fanatic to that intellectual rigor. I mean, I, I've not found it that hard because I think that it is, you know, I mean, first of all, I do have, you know, training as a historian. So I'm used to evaluating bias and, and taking that intellectual and emotional step back and looking at things in kind of almost disengaged or at least emotionally disengaged sort of way. Um, but at the same time, I don't make it a secret that I do enjoy this stuff. I, you know, I, I watched, I would watch Disney. I would own most of the DVDs I have for work. I would probably own them anyway, at least the Disney ones. Um, you know, and it's, for me, it's, it's about not, forgetting that I love it, but using that to propel me to really explore and to understand fully this thing that I have valued and treasured all my life. Um, and I don't think it's the most perfect thing in the whole history of the world. And I, I will definitely say, you know, when things are not right or whatever, but it's, it's not as bad as some people <laughs> have pretended it is. Um, you know, in terms of its history of, you know, sexism and, and so forth, at least, you know, which is what I get thrown at me a lot is, you know, princesses and stuff. I spend a lot of time talking about princesses. Yeah. Well, no, no princesses this week, at least not not literal ones, because um, because it's Christmas um, and uh, we're no princesses at Christmas. Well, well, perhaps that's the question uh, is that. <laughs> Disney Disney is known obviously for its its catalog it's known for its back catalog how it how it selects from that catalog is a massive question and we have talked about it on the podcast and we'll continue to do so but for now I'd I'd like to talk about Christmas mm. in that what is Disney's relationship to Christmas in that uh, it's such a big question but but it's it's a key one of these key kind of cultural drivers of, of framing whatever Christmas means as an imaginary kind of state of being. So, so what does Christmas mean in terms of Disney's relationship to Christmas? Well, I mean, Disney has always liked Christmas as a, you know, as a studio, as a company. 
It's, you know, made Christmas themed shorts going right back to some of the silly symphonies mm. um, and to some of the early black and white Mickey Mouses. So we're talking 1935 and before they're already doing the occasional Christmas short. Um, you know, as television comes along, they're doing Christmas specials here and there, you know, via the Disneyland show and then as sort of standalone things as well. Um, Halloween as well, but Christmas, you know, is, is a real time to shine for them traditionally. Uh, when Disneyland comes along, they begin decorating it for Christmas right from its very first Christmas in 1955. Um, and then, of course, you know, when Disney World comes along in 71, it's the same thing. So, you know, and it's, you know, if you've ever been to one of the Disney parks at Christmas time, you can see just how all encompassing, particularly in the Main Street area, um, less so in other parts of the park, but still depending quite a bit. Um, you know, even in places you wouldn't necessarily expect it, like the Jungle River ride and stuff, um, <laughs> is all Christmasified. And, um, I mean, I, I personally, I don't advise going to Disney World or Disneyland on Christmas Day. It is open, but it's actually one of the busiest days of the year because the magic of Christmas plus the magic of Disney is supposed to be the best day ever. Um, but I went once as a kid the day after Christmas and it was the worst day I've ever had at Disney World. It was wall to wall people. Um, but if you can go earlier and see the decorations and, and sort of get that experience, you know, they, they, it's, they do it beautifully. And then of course, you know, there are all the, the, you know, not just the sort of specials that are like compilations of older shorts and, and segments of movies and all for TV, but then they begin doing things like, you know, a Christmas Carol, Mickey's Christmas Carol. I think it has influenced to a degree just how big people do decorate now for the holidays. Mm. Um, I would actually tie it as a combination between things like, you know, sort of Disney World, Disneyland, Martha Stewart, you know, where it is very much about do it the biggest, the brightest, the most beautiful, you know, leave nothing uncovered in tinsel and garland, you know, really make this amazing, make it special. Um, I mean, as far as tying it in, though, I mean, certainly something that going right the way back to the 1930s, something Disney has always been very good at is tying in all the different aspects of its of its existence. So in the 30s, that was primarily the shorts and merchandising. You don't get, of course, features until Snow White at the very end of 37, just a few days before Christmas is a kind of almost Christmas present. <laughs> um, but, you know, this this short, and I would personally define this as a short, it's 25 minutes, and it's my understanding that feature length is typically defined at about 45 minutes or more. And of course, it starts with the, you know, the sort mm -hmm. of Christmassy version of the, the Mickey Mouse that you see at the start of the, the classic shorts. Um, it had its UK premiere in October for whatever reason, but when it premiered in US theaters, it was the 16th of December of 1983. Also on the 16th of December of 1983 at Walt Disney World was the very first ever launch of the Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party. Um, so this is all about that kind of, you know, and it was certainly a big 80s buzzword, synergistic kind of, you know, tie-ins. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, that was absolutely not an accident. You know, that was very, I'm sure, very carefully planned. It's an interesting. I'm glad you've brought up the date because that's going to be, as we move on to the movie, what I was going to ask. Because it, as you were talking about Disneyland and Christmas and how kind of synonymous as a, as a post-war kind of leisure culture they are, mm -hmm. I, it does strike me that the two places are very, you know, I, I, can, I have been to Disney World as a, as a child and I do remember queuing up to see Mickey Mouse. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking I was queuing up to see Santa. Because, and it wasn't because it was like July and I was a pasty ginger kid in Florida and I mean no idea what to do with my skin but uh, <laughs> but it was it was because it was because um you know that's the only time you do that in Britain is that you queue up at these kind of fairy tale things mm. in the middle of spaces you don't really understand the space is for once designed for you people are looking at you paying attention to mm. you you're in a big long line to meet someone and you're, you, you know i remember thinking okay why am i seeing santa it's like july uh, and then of course you meet mickey and, and the space is very similar aren't they christmas mm. is, is 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 where we where we ad adjust our public spaces our commercial spaces our commercial product mm -hmm. to speak to children just like disneyland yeah. 
But what's interesting about this movie, I think, in terms of its context, is we're talking about the early '80s. So this is, you know, post. This is this is post the first sort of post-war boom. We're getting into Reagan. We're getting into cynicism. And I wonder if we could perhaps situate where we are with both Disney and Christmas now, because if the '50s are all, you know, bright and colourful for some people and and uh, and not for mm. others, this is this is a much more grimy situation we find ourselves in. Surely, both for the studio. And for and for what Christmas might mean, I don't know. But so, where where is Disney in the nineteen eighties, and why is why is this film made? Well, I mean, Disney is not in a great place in the nineteen eighties. It had been struggling for most of the seventies. Um, really, I would argue, since the rating system comes in in the U.S. in in nineteen sixty eight, um, because before that, Disney had had a great time. Certainly in the fifties and the sixties when there's a lot of, of cinema going into circulation in the US without um, a Hays Code certification or anything like that. So you don't know when you sit down exactly what the content is. But the name Disney sort of came to stand in for something safer, wholesome, all of that. And it's not just families, it's not just kids. It's people who don't like a lot of sex and violence and stuff. But of course, after 19, or, you know, after the ratings come in in 1968, they don't, you know, Disney doesn't have that to fall back on. And particularly, I think, once you get past Walt Disney's death, you know, in December of 66, um, the way the studio is run is increasingly by committee, which is the worst way to run anything. Um, you know, they are really struggling. They, they can't quite reach their audience anymore. I think, you know, you, you mentioned all these cultural changes and social changes that have occurred. And I don't think that those in charge had really kept up. A number of them were older people. Um, you know, Roy Disney, for instance, who ran things until the end of, till December of 71 when he died. Um, gosh, I believe he would have been, he would have been around 80, I think, when he died. Um, he was several years older than Walt, um, so he was born in the 1890s. And, you know, so we've got older people who are maybe a little bit more out of touch, who don't understand that audience. They're concentrating also more on live action than they are on animation. Animation's more expensive, more labor-intensive. Live action, they can do much more quickly and cheaply. Um, but also, by the time you get into the 70s, into the early 80s, you know, when my generation are the little kids, Generation X, we are a small generation. Um, you know, the boom, baby boomers, obviously this was gigantic numbers of young children in the 19, late 1940s, 50s, into the 60s. By the time you get into the 70s, the U.S. population actually slightly declines because there aren't enough live births to keep up with deaths. So there just aren't enough of us out there to just happily take whatever Disney has to offer. But I guess we should we should sort of move yeah. headlong into into Mickey's Christmas Carol. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I've lo- lots of interesting things to say. Well, lots of things to say about it that may or may not be interesting, but we'll come to that. Um, but I was <laughs> I was comparing it to Muppets Christmas Carol because I was thinking mm-hmm. about characters and star or, or animated characters as as stars so um mm-hmm. amy is there a could you give us a little sort of i don't know a bit of background so this is 1983 mm-hmm. disney are making a, a a relatively short version as you said 20 25 minute short version of mickey's christmas carol or christmas carol but mickey's mm-hmm. christmas carol yeah, i believe the original name was the christmas carol yeah, yeah. that's my fan <laughs> sure, uh, uh, story yeah, enough yeah, yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> mickey was right yeah 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 they sort of added him like hayden christensen right. into the new star wars they sort of put him in retrospectively but he's not in it that much so mickey's christmas carol what i was expecting was mickey as as the protagonist but but he, he is not the protagonist no. and he couldn't um, be that's not who right. Mickey is, you know. Right. So, so that that is an interesting point. So, yeah. What? Why? Who? Who is Mickey then, and why? Why isn't he playing the lead? Because I think there is this interesting tension, and we get it with the Muppets. Mm. But the sort of these characters, are, uh, of course, they're playing these roles because their stardom dictates that they should. Yeah. So, yeah. Let's let's talk about that. Amy. Well, and I mean, you can't have Mickey being mean. You can't have him being stingy. Or right, right. not giving to the poor, you know, Mickey has been all about that since, you know, roughly 1933, 34. Um, very earliest version of Mickey, mm. maybe, because he was a bit of a mean <laughs> little guy. 
But when he gets his act cleaned up, you know, he's all about helping the poor and the, the downtrod. So for him to be Bob Cratchit makes utter sense because he mm-hmm. is, you know, he's a kind of, you know, and this is something that was said about him back in the late 20s, early 30s. He's a kind of little tramp type character, you know, the you know, like Charlie Chaplin. So for him to be poor old Bob Cratchit, long suffering and still kindly toward his horrible boss, you know, it has to be Mickey. Um, and then, of course, you know, they'd already had the Scrooge McDuck character around <laughs> for a while. So, you know, the name's obvious. He has to be, he has to be Ebenezer. Um, but, I mean, the sort of antecedent to the special is actually a 1974 Disneyland LP, a spoken, largely spoken word album. It does actually have a few musical numbers. Um, it's 90% the same as um, Mickey's Christmas Carol. Um, I think Mickey is given top billing in the title, in mm-hmm. you know, and not on the album, but on the, the special, because he's the bigger name, you know, obviously Mickey Mouse is more famous than Scrooge McDuck. Mickey equals Disney. So, you know, it's a great way to signpost it and you can have cute posters with Mickey Mouse in them and all of that. And then of course, it is actually billed as Mickey's big screen comeback. Uh, this is 1983, and his last uh, theatrical screen appearance had been in uh, The Simple Things, which was a 1953 short that is generally considered to be the last official of the, the Mickey Mouse series. And if you've seen The Simple Things, which is a cute cartoon, it's actually mostly about Pluto and some seagull uh, who sort of takes a shine to the fish that that Pluto and Mickey are meant to be using to go fishing with as bait. Right. So, so that's interesting because I, 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 I was thinking, why is it called Mickey's Christmas Carol when, when Mickey's not much in it as much as perhaps possible? And, and, you know, obviously because of the reasons to do with stardom, but also it seems to be by calling it that, I mean, they could have called it Disney's Christmas Carol, right? That would have been a quite mm-hmm. easy name for it. Mm-hmm. But by the fact they've gone with Mickey, it's that Evo, it's, it's, we're going back to, a version of Disney that you want, but we're not—we're not Disney. We're Mickey. You know, we're embracing Mickey's way of seeing the world rather than what has become by 1983 Disney's way of seeing the world. And that seems to be a gesture to kind of this is a this is a film that is trying to repurpose what a Disney cartoon embodies or whatever. Yeah, and also I think you know again Disney had done so much live action throughout the 60s and 70s mm. into the early 80s that really had no little or no street cred you know there were a few decent ones like the love bug films you know with herbie and all of that but generally speaking a lot of these films are you know for all that there are those of us who have certain ones that we absolutely adore because they were you know random childhood favorites a lot of them are pretty damn lame <laughs> But Mickey Mouse, you know, Mickey is great. Mickey, everybody loves Mickey Mouse. He's literally one of the most recognizable screen personas in history. So it makes sense to tie this to him and to, to sort of, he, he brings all these older associations. He brings associations with Walt Disney, um, who of course was Mickey Mouse's original voice. Um, you know, and Walt and Mickey were, you know, Mickey was Walt's alter ego in most people's minds. So it's that old school Disney that they're hearkening back to almost as if kind of ignoring all that stuff mm. that had come, you know, in between. Well, with the context of the early 80s as well, like the Disney are making films like, you know, I don't know if this is pre or post, but they're making films like uh, Something Wicked uh, This Way Comes. That comes out the same year, I believe. Films like Dragon Slayer, Watcher in the Woods. I mean, Disney's Christmas Carol could just as easily be kind of a, a gothic, you know, uh, macabre <laughs> spectacle as anything else uh, in nineteen in early 80s. So it, it, it's, again, it's this kind of, I think if we called it Disney's Christmas Carol now, there is that. I mean, well, when, there is actually you know, Disney, the Jim Carrey. Christmas Carol that sure. is called which, Disney's Christmas Carol. Yeah, okay, interesting. Which interesting. I forget what year that was. I can try and look That's, it up. I think it's 2009. Okay. Yeah, okay. That was that, that is a much yeah, weirder yeah. spikier mm. 
um, yeah, movie. Yeah. But but perhaps that that'll be next year's one, uh, and I'll, <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll have to think of something. Yeah, and I'll have to think won't. of something else to say about Dickens. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, but but so yes, yeah, so we're Mickey's Christmas Carol. Uh, we've got Scrooge McDuck in the main role, who I didn't know didn't originate from this movie. I remember Scrooge McDuck from Ducktales um, mm. and this film as a kid, and I just always assumed they must have repurposed him from the from the Carol. Because why would you have a character? Yeah. You know, from all the Donald Duck comic books. Um, mm. He, I've, I'd have to look up exactly when he makes his first comic book appearance, but it is in the sixties. Well, he 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 actually, uh, um, according to the uh, interweb, uh, he was created in nineteen forty seven. Oh, so he, so, he, he, so he so he had I, I don't know whether he then appeared in anything before the, the comics and it might be something mm. where the comics sort of made him a made him a star but yeah. um I was with Alex I, I, all my image of him is to just is is jumping into a big big pile of money um, mm. in a vault uh, <laughs> and I have and I'm interested in the image of the vault in relation to this film's sort of media memory in terms of what you were saying earlier Amy about mm. the the nostalgia that this little short has by- bypassing certain elements of history and going right back to, you know, it, I was reading something about this film in terms of the Mickey Mouse universe, which obviously the word universe is something that we now like to talk when when there's any kind of media mm-hmm. crossover. But I certainly didn't get all of the references to all of the different characters in mm. certain scenes in this. And, and, and the image of the vault is obviously something that Disney is very carefully curated. I, I can't remember, I think, I think something written by David McGowan about about the the vault and home media and like the, you know releasing a film from the vault which mm. has has not been available for all and the sort of and I know that J- that James Mason has written about another Disney scholar has written about um, or I've heard him certainly speak about the the imaginary of the vault and this film felt this Mickey's Christmas Carol felt very much we're sort of going into a vault of of or using the framework of a Christmas Carol to to go back to to Disney past present and then speculate a little on the future and I quite like that mm-hmm. sort of media memory element of the film yeah um and some of the ones that i thought most interesting were characters being brought in from the adventures of ichabod and mr toad uh which is the last of the package features in 1949 um so mr toad is as fezziwig um we have rat and moly who are toad's neighbors of course and friends uh, they play the um, alms collectors who come round to Scrooge's uh, office oh. asking for charity, you know, for donations for charity. Um, and then later in the projection, you know, the Christmas yet to come, when we see Scrooge's grave and you see the grave diggers, the two weasels, those are amongst, those are from the weasels from who help take over, steal Mr. Toad's t- mm. uh, home, Toad Hall. So it's full of, of references to that. And interestingly, the if you've seen um, Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, the first half is the Mr. Toad half. And um, it's set at, Chris, at Christmas time in part. Um, and certainly Toad's escape from prison after he's been found guilty of stealing a motor car. Um, that's at Christmas time. And... And he's being used in the in the sort of the is it the the I, I'm gonna I, is it Fezziwig? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I'm such such a Muppet Christmas Carol, but I just think Fozzywig. <laughs> it fe- is fe- The real the real one is Fezziwig. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so it's when it's the uh, the ghost of Christmas past. I don't yeah. think we really need to do the plot in this one. I everyone. think most people. <laughs> it's, it's Christmas Carol. Um, it, it's the ghost of Christmas past sequence, and it's interesting they use that. Is mm. is that is that because? that film which i know you speak about quite fondly in I your work film, um yeah. yeah is that because that film had a, had a resonance in 1980s culture that it probably doesn't now or is it because of mr toad's wild ride or is it a bit of both possibly a bit of both certainly mr toad's wild ride was still at disney world um it was taken away eventually uh, it is still at Disneyland, which I was delighted to discover and rewrite it in 2017, uh, last time I went oh, to wow. Disneyland uh, in California. But um, yeah, it has that. And um, Mr. Toe's Wild Ride was still at Disney World as well in the, in the 80s. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and what I was amazed, because there's, so there's that sequence, there's sort of, um, oh no, it's the same sequence, isn't it? That party sequence is, mm, is really interesting. There's rich. a lot of characters yeah. in, in, in that party sequence. And yeah. and. I thought when I first saw these characters, okay, so what they're going to do here is they're going to draw from a canon of classical, again, I'm kind of using quotation marks, but classical Disney to kind of, because that's the era they're trying to sort of position this film within. Mm. And and we before this, we get 
we've got the the Mickey Brigade. We've had Goofy. We've had Donald Duck. But we've also had Jiminy Cricket um, as the ghost of Christmas mm-hmm. Past. So we're very much in a certain stable. But then you also get like the the cast of Robin Hood turn yeah. up um, to kind of clap along and dance along. So there is a messiness as to what. Yeah period they're drawing yeah. from and here. Huey Dewey and Louie are at the party uh, decorating the tree Chip and Dale are there doing a little yep. minuet or some sort of little dance um, Horace I think Horace Horsecollar and Clarabelle yeah, Cow yeah. are there you know yeah. it's it's and you know those are two of the, the oldest of the characters so it's yeah and then of course Daisy as Isabel who mm. is Scrooge's love interest of course um, is there so that's that felt that felt really wrong. Yeah, that felt yeah, really it, it, wrong. Daisy, Daisy is Daisy chatting up Scrooge be, McDuck. Yeah. That's not even in character. That doesn't make any yeah, sense in my yeah, uh, no. warped rule of Disney. No, she should have been. You know, because Fred, Scrooge's nephew, does have a wife. She could have been his wife, and it would have been all right. But yeah, on your yeah, because Minnie, Minnie's. At, I mean, Minnie doesn't get a line, but she's at least in it as as as, uh, as Emily Cratchit. Yeah. Um, yeah, Mrs. Cratchit. Yeah. So I feel like this poses a really interest when we're thinking about disney characters because this is a relatively as you said earlier we don't need to go through the plot because this is a relatively um in terms of fidelity this is a relatively straightforward adaptation or retelling of, of a christmas carol uh, and, and we've already established that the that, that seasonal specials are very common to disney so this is this is not the first and, and won't be the last christmas special but we have a kind of trickiness when it comes to maintaining and you mentioned this earlier amy in relation to mickey that sort of maintaining character consistency across uh, i suppose nowadays it would be transmedia but multimedia types of, of or you know you, i suppose you get this with merchandise and, and the relationship between characters and, and merchandise or characters and shorts and characters and features but there's a degree which they have to be consistent and then through certain characters like jiminy cricket who is the is the ghost of christmas past that then allows the characters or essentially intellectual property to reappear in these new sort of contexts or this ahistorical context so the fantasy um as i as i understand it in this film is a sort of as a as a framework upon which, as I said, Disney can can play with its characters. It could introduce some characters. It can um, remind audiences of its most beloved characters. And this sense of going back into the archive, this sort of and, I, and I'm wondering whether a film like this is is of the 80s because of the rise in home video or the way in which there's a certain cinephilia or there's a certain collector's sensibility or yeah well and as i've mentioned earlier you know this is actually very closely based on a 1974 spoken word album uh, released by disneyland records um most some of the voice cast is the same we still have alan young doing scrooge's voice Uh, he also does mickey on the lp though not the um mickey's christmas carol that's actually i believe that's wayne allwine's very first ever mickey mouse appearance is in mickey's christmas carol um and then it's got a few slight differences um instead of jiminy cricket for the ghost of christmas past it's merlin um instead of um pete a formerly peg leg pete as the ghost of christmas future mm. uh it actually has um the evil queen in her wicked witch form from snow white really which is very odd um you know, she sort of yeah. comes in with that <laughs> cackle and right. you know very very short bit of the record as a you know as it but it, it's still very noticeable very there um they don't have I mean, obviously, some of the characters, a lot of these characters we've been talking about in the background, like um, Mr. Toad, the Weasels, although they do speak a bit, but Mr. Toad, Minnie Mouse, um, uh, you know, some of these others, we we see them, Chip and Dale, we see them, but they don't actually speak in the show or in the the short. Um, So they, they don't appear on the record. Yeah, okay, so that's interesting because that, so, so we as much as this is an attempt to kind of reclaim in a slightly messy way a, a certain vision of Disney that might have been lost by the early 80s, they're not quite ready to embrace the musical format. They're not quite mm-hmm. ready to do the things that will become hallmarks of the the, the Renaissance to come in, in just a few years' time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this is an interesting one to watch in terms of as a transitional text in that respect. It doesn't quite have the same canonization or periodization that um that the others have it's a bit more kind of um 
linear in its in its view of it, history and mm-hmm. it also isn't quite sure what bits to take and what bits not to take yet so that's yeah okay interesting yeah. interesting and i like the wicked witch as the yeah. as the ghost of christmas future though that's yeah. really cool i think i'd have preferred that but yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> who, who is the person that's the ghost of christmas present I, i'm pretty sure that's an, a, a disney he thing. is i give it a google and it's from fun and fancy yeah, free right which is not one i've seen but yeah um that's another package feature yeah and part of it is mickey and the beanstalk and he is the giant um so and in fact on the album at least i think it's on the album he makes reference to jack and the beanstalk in you know in that character voice and then um both in this um well in mickey and the beanstalk in the album and in the special uh the short he does the same little gag about not being able to pronounce the word pistachio and sort of, you right. know, and then just changes it completely to like, uh, with yogurt <laughs> or something yeah, yeah, yeah. like that. <laughs> oh, yeah, so it's, yeah. you know, very heavily linked to that, that giant character who is also, of course, a character who has a lot of abundance. That's why they need to get up the beanstalk to him. They are casting then. It's so weird mm-hmm. because like these yeah, these are yeah. not the most recognizable. I mean, I don't know. Maybe Fun and Fancy Free was massive the in Mickey 1982. Mickey and the Beanstalk segment was still quite big was yeah. it okay right but you know it's like oh we got to take the giant from that otherwise it won't make sense you know like there's a certain fidelity yeah. to to casting as if they were had a yeah rather than like who are the most recognizable eight people we can put in this movie which is yeah interesting, interesting. although as Sorry, i say i mean you would have seen the mickey and the beanstalk shown occasionally on television by 1983 yeah. you've got the disney channel in the u.s it's a subscription channel okay. but you do it's there i think it's April 1982, I think, is when the Disney Channel launches. Wow. Okay. So, um, you know, it's been shown on that a few times. So it's not the most recognizable. He's not the most recognizable character, the giant. And I think he doesn't even really have a name unusually other than giant. Um, mm. But he isn't completely obscure by this point either. People would recognize him. Yeah, yeah. No, I, well, I want you to, I suppose, pick up a, a little bit on... on the voice given given that you've you've done two excellent impressions that will definitely <laughs> end up being sound bites for this episode Amy. uh th- this this issue of the voice mm-hmm. and and again looking at looking at this film but so many others where we have the this was the first cartoon or the last to feature clarence nash voicing um, donald duck and mm-hmm. so forth and it's always it's always been really interesting the role of in in disney it seems in lots of cases or in predominance the the way in which sort of the the voices become a really interesting marker of authenticity that these films mm. need to be possessed because they are the last to feature the sort of original artist and i know mm. that a lot more recent so the the disney short get a horse from from 2013 that sort of has i think jimmy mcdonald doing the voice of mickey or they take, disney. is that not right oh, oh it's it's um they have both mm. they have mickey and they have jimmy Little mcdonald bits, combined yeah. together yeah yeah uh, you have uh, the Peanuts movie that has um, Bill Melendez uh, voicing um, Snoopy and Woodstock, mm-hmm. even though he died seven years before. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Newman in Cars 3, Don Rickles, Toy Story 4. Mm-hmm. So I, there's lots and lots of instances of the voice being this sort of pulled out of the archive, re- mm-hmm. reconstituted and placed into an animated context. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think, so where are we now? So two two films released this year so space jam and the new tom and jerry that again features snippets of the original roadrunner or the 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 original um voice so mel blanc and june foray in the case of tom and jerry mm-hmm. so the, for me this this film or, or we often use the voice as this authenticating marker um in a for animation in a way that is particularly peculiar and often crops up as i said in these mm-hmm. disney instances where where these films become momentous because mm-hmm. they are the last to feature that particular iteration of the character voiced by this mm-hmm. person and you mentioned it a couple of times you know the last voice before the the mantle is passed to so and so and and so i was just really i, I f- kind of find that interesting mm-hmm. and of course this has been supported by more sophisticated editing software and the ability to kind of keep paul newman on fire yeah. as it were yeah. and then and then have him play play posthumously yeah. but i just yeah i suppose the voice it, because it's cropped up a couple of times it, it seems like this this short it, you know, it's one of those one of those ones where we 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 really enjoy it, and we've got a nostalgia. The nostalgia that plays out at the level of narrative in this film is also kind of playing out for us yeah. now, 
sonically because these are the last times we hear these the people. last times or the first times is yeah clarence nash's last yeah. is donald mm. uh wayne allwine's first is mickey you yeah, know, yeah, and you know yeah. he was the longest-serving voice for Mickey Mouse. Jimmy McDonald right, does right. it for technically for roughly the same number of years, but he's not the only one doing Mickey's voice during the time he's doing it. Um, it other people, to include Clarence Nash, actually, um, and Alan Young, would pitch in and do Mickey from time to time. So to do it consistently, Wayne Allwine yeah. did it longer than anyone else. And then, of course, very famously, uh, from, I think, 1991, was married to Russie Taylor, who, of course, was Minnie's <laughs> voice. So Mickey and Minnie were married yeah, yeah. in real life, as it were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but, that, but then this raises, I suppose, other questions of impersonation. Mm. And, and, of course, the, the, the transmedia are, or the post-cinema are afterlives of these characters where the reason or, or one of the the powers of the star voice is that it can then be impersonated mm. so we have um even if even if characters don't want to perform or it's not part of their contract to perform as the doll or the video mm. game it doesn't matter jay jay farrow can do the donkey and shrek it doesn't have to be mm. eddie murphy but it just it does mean that as part of the consistency of character in terms of we can't have mickey playing this character because we, we have to have a uh, a coherency mm -hmm. to his to his performances and his characterization and personality we can't go against his personality there's a song element to this in that any subsequent iteration of and i think this happens a lot with the warner brothers mm. you have you have characters that you have to sound like and even kermit the frog you have to have new voices mm. that maintain that consistency you yeah. can't so it's really about impersonation yeah. and of course this has been sharpened i think recently when it comes to to white performers voicing black characters on, on programs mm. like family guy and, and the simpsons and and i think the producers of family guy sourced a voiceover art or sourced, went online and found a voice artist who could impersonate uh, mike henry who was doing the voice of cleveland mm. and so that to allow for a seamlessness um of casting but i mean the star voice is obviously interesting in lots mm. and lots of ways for animation but no i think disney is is one of those studios where i've often heard the role of the authentic voice more so than other studios maybe warner brothers as i said but disney this mm -hmm. sort of passing of the baton that is really important for the consistency of these characters well because these characters are so they're so important to so many people you know yeah. they are they're almost like a, an extra member of the family they are they are just part of special times you know visits to disney world or disneyland you know, all the holiday stuff, all of the movies and the shorts and all of that, that mean a lot to people. And then, of course, the way Mickey in particular, and I think he's probably the most protected persona. You know, others mm. might occasionally be, you know, they might toy with casting them a slightly, if not entirely against type. They would never mm. be able to do that with Mickey. I think it would be too upsetting to too many people. But equally, I don't know how much Mickey's persona would allow that because he becomes very yeah. much the straight man and you know kind of boring yeah. you know to well, in this, a way this is what i was thinking i was thinking the problem with mickey mouse is that he's not really allowed to do anything mm -hmm. is he because drama requires yeah. some <laughs> some level of uh of crisis. character development yeah. crisis, crisis yeah. flaw you know flaws yeah. something and, and and i you know it, it that's another reason why they perhaps found it more and more difficult to make mickey mouse cartoons yeah. is that is that actually the only way you can really use him is to have him pop up in things like this do the nice bit for two minutes and then sort of sit in a corner because it's yeah. like this sources of apprentice is the other big you know when he's known for where he, again he's 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 only you know he's not the the driving force of the narrative it's people off screen yeah. so and yeah i i was struck by how little mickey does in this not just how little he's in it but how little he you know the bob cratchit cover is very subservient but this is a particularly subservient version of the bob cratchit yeah character. yeah and i mean you don't really get much done of interest with mickey that focuses on mickey until um it was the 2000s i think about 2004 or 5 when you get uh, the new series of mickey mouse um shorts uh or this it's really a tv series the wonderful world of mickey mouse where mm. um the characters are very very redesigned into you know a look that you can best define as kind of retro you know they're they're modern but they're very much hearkening back to sort of early color mickey but also in a much more sort of mid-century vibe um, you have Mickey, Minnie, Donald, Goofy, Pluto, Daisy, you know, with occasional visits from other characters. 
And this time, you know, Mickey is allowed to be more of a slightly more of a troublemaker to get into, you know, into scrapes and into difficulties, you know, to have Mm -hmm. wild things happen to him. Um, you know, and therefore he becomes interesting again. And they've actually managed to have a number of, of seasons of this series of Mickey Mouse shorts because mm. they've basically said, let's stop making him such a nice guy. Let's bring back some of that slightly meaner aspect, you know, naughtier mm-hmm. aspect that he used to have. But but that that's a that surprises me in 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 lots of ways, because I would imagine, and I'm, and I, I guess my comparison here is something like the minions, the ability mm. of the minions to be themed. So the theme ability of of minions in relation to turning, transforming a minion from from yellow to purple, and that's a monster, or putting a Christmas hat on them and they're Christmas. That sort of mm. way in which characters can be themed across merchandise, and and yeah. and I was just wondering or, or thinking that in this case it would make sense that Mickey is is relatively, I don't want to say bland, but relatively themable yeah. because it then malleable. allows a lot of these characters to move yeah malleable yeah. but it allows them to move into different seasonal holidays with relative relative ease yeah. but there's only so far that that will get you as anyone who's seen the third <laughs> despicable me will, will, will mm. know but there's only so far that that will get you and it, i was just uh, in terms of the mickey's not allowed to do anything i thought well, that kind of makes sense because he has to fulfill so many different roles in so many different mm. media enterprises mm-hmm. and products and and he has to to be themed in lots of ways and i it just it just struck yeah. me that it makes sense that he retains that element of of an archetype yeah because he can then be transplanted into into halloween to christmas to, yeah. to whatever and it I've is personally own halloween thanksgiving and christmas merchandise related <laughs> to him i've seen hanukkah related merchandise um you know other sorts of you know fourth of july you know all of these kinds of things where he can just be recostumed and slightly reworked and even in again some of these specials that have come along in much more recent years um there was one just this um, just last month, or sorry, in October, on the Disney Channel. It's still it's still November in my head. In October on the Disney Channel. But but of course it's Christmas Day right oh, now. Oh, absolutely. Yes, yeah, sorry. The, yeah. the, the mistletoe <laughs> yeah. is right above my door here. Um, <laughs> it's um, where they, it was. It's they're meant to be telling scary stories, and they take on this very you know sort of Mickey becomes this very monstrous vo- character who's telling these terrible stories to scare the kids. And I actually just recently came across online um, a 2022 wall calendar where it's all Mickey and Minnie, but it's all a kind of gothic vampiric Mickey and Minnie for each month. Um, so you know, Mickey the the, the vampire is just as yeah. as acceptable in that way because it's done very tongue in cheek, as you know, Mickey the sweet little Bob Cratchit or you know Victorian Christmas character. I was actually going to ask, and I've decided not to, but I'm going to ask it now because you just that that last thing <laughs> provoked the thought in me. In that, the, I guess this is a question kind of on the back of what Chris was saying about voices. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, a bit of an impish question, but why do why are we so worried that Mickey sounds right um, when actually Mickey uh, that is that uh, uh, comment you made about him uh, looking the same? But actually, he, he changes hasn't... all the time, but his essentialness yeah. stays the same. He's still the three so circles, a... you know. Sure, sure. So there's still that you know the, the sort of the 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 the, the um uh, earful tower emblem, as I remember mm-hmm. for the, sort of the um the water tower in um in M- it's I'm calling it MGM At Studios. Hollywood Studios. I think it's Hollywood Disney's Studios Hollywood now Studios, because yeah. because I I have decided I'm old enough in life where I'm just going to cling on to how things used to be called, like just like my parents <laughs> did. Um, <laughs> yeah, fine. Um, so yeah, but 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 yeah, but he does change, mm-hmm. like just like the voice, he changes, and it's the, it's the, the voice might find the but actually the the design changes the animators who make him change and we've talked often to. on the podcast about animators being a, animation being a performance mm-hmm. and that you're in dialogue with the character yeah. so 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 why you know it's it's not just the voice that that we're trying to sort of i don't know fix into a into a definite model that was never there but we're trying to do it with lots of elements of this this character maybe the reason he's so flexible is that he isn't he's never actually as as defined as we um perhaps even the studio would want him to be 
So I would say, building on that though, building on that though, is that the is the voice then because the character has these modulations, the voice becomes this repeating constant, and and that that for me is what makes Mickey a, a star because we expect stars to to sound a certain way unless they they change or affect an accent or they you know if you're Meryl Streep you affect an accent and, and are incredible and that's but we expect stars to sound a certain way which is why they're so good for voice work but it also allows a level of consistency and the same is true of Mickey we expect him to sound a certain way and and even though animators come and go and accru- and crucially he may become digital he may be digitized he and, and he's not just yeah. He has been exactly. Yeah. Uh, so it's not just. Uh, I remember the the kind of furore of. I think there was some new Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner shorts, Coyote Falls, mm. I think, and it was one of the first to be dig- digital. And you sort of think, well, these characters don't look like that. The stars, mm. and and the, and the same is true. And this is why I think we can read them as stars in terms of modulating oh, yeah. appearances and the way that they inhabit these roles and so forth. But the voice becomes this authenticating factor that is that's supposedly constant. So that allows us to maybe forgive these 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 modulations yeah. which is why impersonation it becomes such an important yeah. element and that's of, of yeah and characters. that's basically what i mean what i'm saying is you know we're so used to appearance changing that yeah. when the voice changes as yeah, or yeah. only the voice changes yeah it's 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 a bit sort of what's what's going on there and you know they've as you you know you mentioned uh the muppets and of course you know when jim henson passed away they handed uh, Kermit over to Brian Henson, you know, mm. Jim's son, hoping that, you know, being the son, his voice, but everybody can tell, you know, and you, you, you get yeah, gags yeah. all over. I always think of, you know, um, there's a gag in family guy where one of the characters, I think it's um, Stewie says something about, you know, taking chicken pox seriously, you know, Jim Henson didn't ch- take chicken pox seriously. And now what do we have? Wrong sounding Muppets. You know, yeah. but then there are also things like um, I remember hearing about many years ago, um, probably you know fifteen, sixteen years ago, about um, the Mexican Simpsons voices went on strike, and they tried bringing in other actors to do their voices for the Mexican broadcasts of the Simpsons, and because they and even tried bringing in big stars to do the voices for Mexican cinema and TV. And audiences just weren't buying it because that wasn't how these characters sounded. And mm. I've always found it fascinating because I've seen dubs of, well, The Muppet Show and uh, South Park, The Simpsons, few others in multiple languages to include Irish Gaelic. Um, living in Northern Ireland, when analog TV was still around, you'd occasionally get, uh, I think it's pronounced Teje Cahar, which is the, the Irish language channel from the Republic. So, you know... The Muppets show in Gaelic is brilliant because the guest stars still speak English, but the Muppets are in Gaelic. Um, <laughs> I've even seen SpongeBob SquarePants in Gaelic. <laughs> and they still cast, for all that these are different languages, voices that are similar. You know, yeah. mm. Marge Simpson is recognizably Marge Simpson, not identically, but recognizably in any language that she's speaking in. And I think it is just they decide voice matters, accent matters, because it tells us about the personality. And of course, within animation, that's a, it's a wonderful shorthand for a character. I mean, with my students, I always do when we talk about this a bit, I always use Lois Griffith as um, my contact point, you know, where she's she's got that very New England, you know, sort of nasal accent. And, you know, when she yells at, you know, it's always Peter, Peter, get in here. But imagine if she suddenly, Peter, Peter, get in here. Suddenly she's from a different part of the U.S. She's of a different class. She's, you know, all kinds of things have suddenly shifted quite dramatically about her because of just that change of accent. So Mm. it matters. And I think it matters more than the appearance for all that that interesting that. It's interesting then as a note that obviously this started as an audio mm-hmm. um, project then, right? Yeah, this is all about voices on a tape mm-hmm. that then decided to be visualised. So that yeah. primacy that you're articulating is there in the production of this movie. Yeah. So that's, that's but interesting. But then they, well, the, the adaptation starts on a record, but of course those voices predated it. Mm. You know, yeah. So we knew... So this this short this short is the ultimate in Mickey Mousing then because mm. they've got an audio source and they've fit the images to to, to the sound. Yeah. I mean, no, I think the voice thing is is as you were saying, Amy, the the industrial undergirdings of of the voice and and even we expect dubbed stars or dubbed animated mm-hmm. characters to sound a certain way and and stars across national borders 
being stars for voicing particular or, or voice actors becoming stars for voicing particular you know i'm the daniel craig of i mean because you said the simpsons and 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 i mean i'm thinking of of senior spurts or was it spielberg yes. or something like that <laughs> yeah um no but I, yeah i know there's lots lots to say about voice and, and accent mm. in animation and i think that, and and something like mickey's christmas carol really does yeah yeah raise some interesting stuff around the the, the buried the buried voice in an archive yeah. or or a voice that you don't kind of no longer no yeah. longer here um we're getting i suppose right. we're getting to time so i guess yeah i've got i've got christmas shopping to do everyone we got we're gonna have <laughs> oh, to wrap, right, we're gonna have right, to wrap right, this up right. i haven't bought my any any yet. fantasy bits any <laughs> fantasy bits Alex? Right, it might be all imaginary <laughs> at this rate um <laughs> yeah, yeah. i've already done all my yeah. christmas shopping ah oh, nice oh. nice 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 of course um, you have it's christmas well, day yeah <laughs> We're, Where have you been? This is as temporally confused as the carol <laughs> itself. Um, yeah, I think I think that's about it. I mean, we managed to get a lot out of twenty-four minutes of material there, but I think it's nice to touch on on the wider issue of sort of you know Disney's role in Christmas. And I think I think the only thing I've got left to say is that you know I said I'd say something about Dickens, and I think it's such a it's such a good story to use because Dickens, and I think we've talked about this on previous episodes where we've done versions of it, but Dickens is original carol is so slippery in terms of what it's trying to say because it's on one hand so anti-commercial you would think in its story of you know this miserly man who who learns the 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 power of generosity and and all this sort of stuff and yet it also gives birth to many of the things that we obsess about buying at christmas Mm. time and and the way you know that kind of the way it embodies that contradiction at the end of scrooge basically learning to to learning to give by learning how to buy is quite a you know it's quite it's quite a a disney-esque uh dare i say uh you know you know parable of of uh of of you know of warmth and generosity and here's the gift shop and that contradiction um is there but in in, in source and and in, in mm. tone so i think uh, you know I, th- I think i think it was i think it was well worth a revisit and thank you amy um so much for um for, for helping us through it uh it yeah absolutely thanks yeah, so it was much fun to talk about it thank you for having me uh chris do you have any other christmas cheer to spread or uh no well well, well uh, yes but no i suppose i did mention it at the start a relation to technology and this is really a little footnote but um lots has been written about animation and disney's relationship in particular within that to, to technology but i suppose a little shout out to, to the 1980s of in terms of disney's mm encroaching experiments with computer graphics and and mickey's christmas carol sort of pioneers this a, a new sort of yes we haven't I talked suppose. about that there is a new technology Post, that, yeah, I get, that you're gonna have to tell me all about because i glazed over as i start no, reading no, about it on wikipedia i mean there's lots of stuff around um and amy will know more about this than me but the 101 dalmatians lots of online forums that are called things like why does 101 Dalmatians look mm-hmm. like that? Uh, and connecting out to, to the to the Xerox process, mm-hmm. but the APT process, animation photo transfer, where the sort of ink is photographed directly onto or transferred directly onto acetate cells. This film is sort of um, playing with that. I don't really know too much about it. I suppose we can fold it into a bigger. Yeah. Disney was, I suppose, starting to experiment with, with different ways of, of producing animation in the lead up to what would become um, a, yeah. a very successful integration of, of yeah, I know that I know films. that Dalma- with Dalmatians anyway, it's um, a process that Ub Iwerks, one of the you know sort of co-designers of the original Mickey Mouse, yeah. um, it's a process he came up with that Walt really disliked it but it won in terms of budget and later he sort of grudgingly said, well, I guess it looks all right kind of thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, yeah, that's it. A little, yeah. I suppose a little note. Yeah. Disney, Disney has often been positioned, I suppose, historically within a relationship to yeah. technology, sound, color. Well, they're um, pioneers in one way or another from so yeah. much of that. Mm. And that, and that's really, I suppose that's really, mm. yeah, that feeds into the way that, that Walt has been. I mean, we haven't really talked about, Walton and Charles Dickens as, as storytellers, mm. and I suppose the last the last note I've got on the film is the way that the image, I think the final animated image, becomes crystallised as an illustration, mm-hmm. and I yeah. thought that was a really nice end of end of um, end of the film. But no, nothing else, nothing else from me. So I'll leave you, Alex, to do the obligatory admin because I can't do it. Okay. <laughs> Terrific. Uh, I feel like I'm like the, the dad who has to clear up after the griff wraps now. Um, you know, I've got to clear up the living room because you've all run out of the room playing with your toys. But all right. Well, 
first not admin but a, but a delight for Amy thanks one more time for coming on the podcast Thank it was a really pleasure to, um, to have you on um, if uh, listeners wanted to find out more stuff about Disney if they wanted to follow your work you have a Twitter handle I, I believe do. why don't we uh, plug it uh, it's at Dr. just Dr. Amy M. Davis um, okay. Davis without any nice e. and easy <laughs> Okay, nice and easy. Nice and easy. Please yeah. do follow her on that and um, take up with the um, latest projects. Your books are still available mm. to buy uh, on on Amazon and and uh, actually a relatively uh, healthy price for it compared to some academic work. Yes. So people can go out there and and spend their mm-hmm. their hard earned Christmas oh well their their, their Christmas money yes, the, because it's already been yes. Christmas in the January <laughs> sales. There we are. The anal- the tortured go. analogies continue. <laughs> uh, there we go. Cool. Um, otherwise, um, a very merry Christmas to you all. Uh, God bless us, everyone. We have been Fantasy Animation. That's been us for 2021. What a year it has been. And 22 probably um, will not be without some dramas, but we'll be there with you all the way. We're going to take a little bit of a break just for a couple of weeks um, while we recharge our batteries. Um, so we'll see you in the new year um, uh, with um, with some more episodes and some more fun things lined up, yeah. some of which we've recorded already. So we're excited to share, you with, uh, share them with you. But keep an eye on your podcast feeds and on your social media handles and we will return in due course. Don't worry. Um, you can do that by following us at FanAnim Research, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research at Twitter um, or on Twitter, <laughs> uh, Facebook, and Instagram as well as fantasy-animation.org and I'll tease you with this do you have a question for Chris and I that we keep something maybe perhaps we keep going on about in a podcast that you've uh, always wanted us to explain a question in the air about anything to do with fantasy animation that you want Chris and I to answer in 10 minutes or less send us an email fananimresearch f-a-n-a-n-i-m research at gmail.com and we will answer it in a form to be revealed in the new year otherwise uh, thank you very much for Um, for listening and I wish you a happy holiday and a very happy new year bye